Today on the podcast, we revisit the bar exam once more. Is it going the way of the dodo or does it just need a facelift? Let's find out. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So in addition to On the Merits, Bloomberg Law also has a sister podcast that does deep dives into legal issues with extensive reporting and lots of really cool sound design. That podcast is called Uncommon Law and is hosted by Adam Allington, who also happens to be today's guest on our show. Adam is about to come out with a three-part series on Uncommon Law about the bar exam. Why is it the way it is? How is it changing? And actually, is it changing? That series will hit podcast apps tomorrow, November 10th. And here's a preview. Alexis Alzada recently graduated from Emory Law School and took the Georgia bar exam last July and should be getting the results of that exam any day now. Alexis did well in law school. In fact, she already has a job lined up with a criminal defense firm. But despite that, she says she's not confident at all about how she did on the bar exam. Not at all, actually. I would, be, I would think to myself, you know, statistically, how could I not pass the bar? I've done so well in law school, like top of my class. I've worked really hard. I've studied at least half of these subjects in depth in actual classes, not just for two months on Barbary. So I should know these things and I should be fully prepared to take the bar and, and pass it with flying colors. But going into the bar exam, I mean, I was barely passing. So I truly have no idea whether or not I pass. And that in itself makes no sense to me because I did great in law school, you know? Today, I spoke to Adam to get a sense of what he's learned reporting out this series and how we got here with the bar exam in the first place. Yeah, you know, to start with the external factors, uh, you know, typically law graduates, the rule of thumb is they spend about two full months of study getting ready for the bar exam. That's time, you know, when they're not working, you know, just wake up, study all day long for two months. Nearly all students end up purchasing some kind of test prep program. Uh, one of the most common is uh, from a company called Barbary. Uh, these these test prep programs, you know, can cost thousands of dollars in some cases. And as you can imagine, this whole system is you know, one that tends to benefit students who have money and time and can spend, you know, two full months studying on their own. Right. We should we should clarify here that the people who are taking this exam are people who just graduated from law school, probably have, you know, a lot of debt and are by definition not working because you're, you know, studying for the bar exam is a, like a full time job. That's right. The fortunate students are, are would be the ones who maybe already have a uh, a job offer waiting for them at a at a big law firm. In those cases, students are lucky in that their firms may pay for the cost of their test prep. To other other students say, if you want to be a public defender or you're you're not going to work at a big law firm, you know you're on your own for this whole process. And all this comes at the end of three full years of law school. So you know there's a lot riding on the on these tests. Um, and then the tests themselves, as I said, this is two full days of intense testing. You know they cover a wide range of topics. Um, and in some cases, there's more than one correct answer. So you know you got to really dig deep into your legal knowledge. And the big criticism that a lot of people have is that the bar exam is basically this hazing ritual of memorization, you know, that it's 
that it's just testing your ability to take tests rather than your ability to really understand and interpret the law. Right, because that that was another thing that I really liked about your podcast is that someone pointed out, like, when are lawyers ever going to have to, like, obtain and, and, and use knowledge without a book, no access to electronics? Like, that's just not – it seems like in 2021, that's, like, not something that any lawyer would have to do. They'd always have access to, like, reference materials or, like, co- colleagues who can help them out, right? Yeah, And especially as the practice of law has become more and more specialized, right? You know, if you're a tax attorney or if you practice healthcare law or intellectual property or First Amendment law, you are working in a very specific corner of the law. And you probably just don't need to have all this other information taking up space in your brain. And say, for instance, if you do end up with a case in one of these areas that you're not very familiar with, there are just plenty of resources available for you to get up to speed quickly or to find the answers to the questions you need. So the idea that you need to just hold all of this information in your brain isn't really reflective of the way attorneys work today. So give me a sense of of how we got here. What led to the bar exam being like this? Yeah, let me just take a brief walk through history here. So back in the day, there there were no bar exams. Instead, would-be attorneys learned the practice of law through uh, apprenticeships or, in some cases, self-study. Uh, you know, typically, they'd go work for an established lawyer, doing clerical duties, drawing up routine contracts and wills and things like that until they basically went out on their own. Then, you know, starting in the late 1800s, these things called law schools started to pop up as an alternative to this apprenticeship model. You know, you go to college, you learn the the trade there, and then when you graduate, boom, you're a lawyer. You know, at this point, requirements for bar admission were were still pretty minimal. Uh, Then uh, in the 1920s, uh, the American Bar Association formally expressed a preference uh, for a required written bar examinations in place of this, you know, this apprenticeship model. And then I think it's the modern version of the bar exam that we have today kind of got its genesis in 1972 with this thing called the multi-state bar exam, the MBE, as it's called, uh, was developed by the National Conference of Bar Examiners. And the MBE is a six-hour, 200-question, multiple-choice exam covering a range of topics, things like contracts, torts, constitutional law, criminal law, procedure evidence, so forth. Um, And then, you know, so today, most jurisdictions have the MBE, but they also have these other aspects of the bar. All told, it's a two-day long exam uh, consisting of essay questions, the MBE, and these things called performance tests, which are basically kind of legal research and writing tests. Before we get into the counterarguments here, you know, the people who are defending the role of the bar exam, We should mention that this exists alongside the broader push to increase diversity in the legal profession. You know, we've talked about this on the podcast before about efforts law schools and firms are taking to be more deliberate when it comes to things like hiring or law school admissions. So along those same lines, there are critics who point out that the success on the bar exam often really correlates with things like household income, meaning groups like minority students, immigrants, or students with fewer economic means are at a disadvantage. Can you Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's uh, it is certainly one of the barriers that among many that people will talk about. It's definitely not the only reason. You know, as we kind of mentioned, 
the way people study and prepare for the exam is determined in large part by the means at your disposal. Say, uh, even if you have a, a you know a really good laptop that you know with a lot of memory that's fast and access to Wi-Fi, these are all things that people in rural areas, people you know living at home with their parents, you know can't necessarily take for granted. And so we, what people have seen when they look at the data on these pass rates is that. You know where that where they set the cut score is often a couple points up or down is where you tend to lose a lot of your uh, law students of of color in some cases. California, for instance, recently dropped their pass score down a few percentage points and found that they had a a much higher percentage of attorneys of color who then passed. And so, you know. People just argue that at a time when the whole industry is hyper aware of their diversity challenges, that the bar exam is just an unnecessary barrier and one that is disproportionately impacting minority students without really providing any meaningful role on the back end in terms of protecting clients from unqualified practitioners. So let's get into the counter arguments here. Um, You know, the people who either say, you know, the bar exam should remain with some tweaks, or people who say that the status quo is uh, fine. What w- would those people say? I mean, I'd imagine that they're, one of the strongest arguments is that this prevents unqualified lawyers from practicing and, and harming their clients. Right. That's the that's the standard argument that this is a this is a client protective measure. We don't want people out there, uh, you know, taking clients' money, misleading people, um, and and offering them bad legal advice. Among the people I spoke to for our podcast series, you know, uh, people say that the bar exam is, um, you know, that it isn't a hazing ritual of memorization, that it's really there to test on certain core principles, core legal foundational principles that every attorney should know. There are cases where people are kind of given the benefit of the doubt by their professors or they're allowed to, you know, skate through and so, you know, just the fact that they graduated law school doesn't necessarily mean that they're qualified to practice. And this test is as a way of checking on that. You know, other people say that, um, you know, that the, that the bar exam is becoming more modern in that it, it does test on certain, you know, skills based aspects that lawyers need to know, things like legal research, writing, um, you know their ability to synthesize and and write legal you know documents these kinds of things are starting to become more of the test and so you know these people say somewhere on the lines of like don't touch it at all or you know the bar you know we can you know tweak and update things to be more reflective of the way attorneys work today yeah so speaking of the way attorneys work today let's talk about what's happening today uh and by today i mean the last uh, year or two, um, one of the people that you spoke to had a really good turn of phrase. He said that uh, the pandemic was a stress test on the rusty hull of the bar exam. Yeah, that 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 quote you mentioned uh, comes via Joe Patrice from the Above the Law blog, um, who's really been covering this story, along with our colleague uh, here at Bloomberg Law, Sam Skolnick, I should say. Both of these guys have been all over this topic. So the pandemic is has really, you know, we got to go back two summers here to, uh, you know, the spring of, of 2020 when the pandemic was really just starting to spread 
widely across the country. You know, the bar exam's given twice a year in July and in uh, September. And for the July 2020 exam, because, you know, we were on lockdown in a lot of states and, and students couldn't go into these big testing centers, you know, crowded into rooms. And so a lot of states were figuring out what to do. So some states weren't able to spin up a remote testing regime in time to do this. So what they did was five jurisdictions, uh, Washington State, Oregon, Utah, D.C., and Louisiana, decided to just grant what's called diploma privilege, that if you graduated in good standing from from an ABA-accredited law school, that's good enough, you're admitted to the bar. And so famously, one state in the country, Wisconsin, has always done it this way. If you graduate from one of Wisconsin's two law schools, you can be admitted to practice law in Wisconsin through diploma privilege. And it's always just been Wisconsin. And so now what we have is we have, you know, five other examples that we can look to. And so in three, four years down the road, if these, you know, it was about a thousand attorneys uh, that were admitted under these emergency measures, if those attorneys are no different than any any of the other ones who ended up taking the bar, then then people say, like, you know, that is proof that this whole thing is nothing more than, um, you know, a big paper drill. What's what's happened since the last summer? I mean, are there now some of those states that granted emergency diploma privilege? Are they considering, you know, making that just the way they do it, moving to the Wisconsin model? Or, or are there other states that saw what happened and are looking to try that out? Like what's, what's, where is the bar exam innovation uh, happening? Where's it coming from? Yeah, well, you know, the pandemic really galvanized a lot of the criticisms of the bar that have been kind of bubbling along for a while. Um, There was a, there's a a group of law graduates uh, called United for Diploma Privilege that was really out in front on this issue. you know, a number of law school deans were also, you know, t- talking about this. And so where we are now is uh, some states are in the process of evaluating what they're going to do next, that, um, you know, they've spun up these uh, blue ribbon commissions where they're where they're asking these questions. Do we want to continue with the bar exam uh, or do we want to do something else, maybe diploma privilege? And so those processes are ongoing uh, you know, other people would also say that the the pandemic exposed some of the vulnerabilities of, say, remote testing that that were used. That you know, this uh, the the remote proctoring software used to to run these exams would crash, or you know, if students again, if you don't have good Wi-Fi, or you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be t- in the middle of the bar exam and then your Wi-Fi cuts. Oh God, that sounds like a just. A nightmare on top of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, people who say, well, we don't need to do these, you know, we don't need to, you know, have in-person testing anymore would say, though, well, remote, how are we going to do the remote testing? Um, and so there's there are a lot of questions yet to be figured out. But uh, the pandemic has just really, again, is kind of brought a lot of these uh, questions to the forefront and forced states to reckon with them um, in ways, you know, attorneys are kind of by design are trained to sort of go with the status quo. And and what we have had through the pandemic was the complete opposite of the status quo in, in many, many ways. And so that's going to be an interesting 
process to watch unfold. Um, it, you know, if, if you start to see states back out of the bar exam, um, you know, all states aren't aren't created equal. You know, California, New York, Florida, for instance, you have a lot of law firms there, a lot of law schools. But other states, we you know, with one or two big state schools, um, you know, may decide they want to go, they want to be more like Wisconsin. I think that is definitely in the realm of possibility. But, you know, you're still going to have the bar exam for most law students. It's going to be a thing. Um, although, you know, it's just still one heck of a test, and I'm glad I don't have to take it. Ditto. Uh, well, that was Adam Allington, the host of the Uncommon Law podcast here at Bloomberg Law, talking about his uh, upcoming podcast series on the bar exam coming out later this month. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have a lovely day. Talk to you soon, David. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Cheryl Sines, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Make sure to check out Uncommon Law for Adam's upcoming series. He's also done awesome reporting projects into communications law and diversity in the profession. It's really great stuff. Once again, the podcast is Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.